Sometimes it's inevitable to give in Sometimes that's the only way to begin Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, recording in Tokyo, Japan, and with me in Fukuoka, Japan, is my co-host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals, published authors, and we really never stop scouring the Japanese countryside for interesting spirits to discuss. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for a combined three decades, and we're very excited to share them with you through this podcast. Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing well, as always, Christopher. I'm really enjoying the research in digging into these other spirits categories and learning more and more about these drinks and how, how uniquely they're made in Japan. I think it's a fun thing to do. And it's, I guess, continuing education for both of us. And, and that's rewarding. The studying never stops. I never thought I'd enjoy studying history and, and chemistry and all of these things that used to drive me insane when I was in school. So much, you know? Sure. Now I'm a big fan of all of these subjects. Yeah, I've been a history fan for a long time and always, I think, been fascinated by cultural differences and how different parts of the world see things different ways. And I think today's episode is kind of a great example of that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great segue, actually. So I'll, I'm going to use that. On our aromatic show to episode, as some people will remember, and that was episode 18 for any of you who want to go back and listen to it. Please do, by the way. We likened aromatic shochu, what we have come to define as aromatic shochu, to eau de vie, since such a big part of the experience is the capturing of the aromas of the raw ingredients. And so today, we're going to talk about eau de vie in, in quite a bit of detail because it is something that's starting to happen a little bit in Japan. But before we talk about Japan, let's get our bearings. I have with me, I'm going to I have to pick it up just a second. It's really heavy. <laughs> Ugh, okay. I have with me the recently published Oxford Companion to Spirits and Cocktails, which is edited by David Wondrich and with uh, the also the equally amazing Noah Rothbaum. And I have turned to page 241 where we have a definition of eau de vie. And I'm going to start from right about... Okay. And this is David Wondrich's writing, I should say. While it can be applied to spirits, the name, that have been barrel-aged, it usually denotes one that is unaged. By far the most common use of the term is for the unaged fruit spirits made in Alsace and elsewhere along France's eastern border from cherries, plums, apples, pears, quinces, raspberries, strawberries, a number of other berries and fruits, and even wine leaves or beer draft. All right, so I guess the standard that we're looking at right now is, is one very much of berries. I mean, that seems to be what a lot of people are going to think of when you say the word or the phrase eau de vie. Right, I, and I think uh, typically it is thought of as, as a fruit distillate, but taking a step back, what's interesting is in French, eau de vie simply means water of life. And it's the ter general term used for distilled alcohol. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's really come to refer to, I guess what we could call unaged fruit brandies for the most part. 
Mm-hmm. And in other parts of the Western world, it tends to be a little more restrictive in that it's essentially uh, fruit distillates from things other than grapes. We think of brandy as being from grapes. Also, for people familiar with spirits traditions in other parts of Europe, schnapps are essentially eau de vie. They're the German example of that. And it's interesting as you're talking about that eastern border of France where the, where the eau de vie production is concentrated just not so far away from there in the Black Forest and the east in the western uh, border of Germany is where a lot of schnapps are made. Right. But basically in either of these traditions, the Western European traditions, it's to capture the aromatics and the essence of the fruit uh, or botanical that's being included in the in the fermentation. Even in France, uh, fruit spirits that are made from fruits with low sugar content are actually those fruits macerated in uh, neutral spirit to extract the aromas and flavors. So it's not s- simply a fruit fermentation that's being distilled like brandy or calvados or grappa, right? It's a little bit more broad than that where the fruit might be used as a flavoring to neutral spirit and then redistilled. Right, yeah. Especially with uh, larger larger makers are going to use the maceration technique. I think the actual fruit in the fermentation is a much more agricultural endeavor, meaning just like in the old days where it was largely farmers who were extending the life of a crop or they were, you know, just trying to make a little bit of extra cash, they would, they would start a fermentation with the fruit. Um, that's very much an artisanal endeavor today where you're actually, you have the fermentation being fueled by these fruits rather than it being a maceration. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now that we have a f- general working definition for eau de vie, let's set a few boundaries here. And of course, there are exceptions to a lot of rules, but typically sweeteners or fruit flavoring additives are not put into the spirit after distillation. And I think that's quite important to remember. Another thing is that cask aging, as I said before, is not super common, but when it is used, it's used in a way where it's not going to have a profound effect either on the flavor or the color of the finished spirit. And that can be achieved by using, you know, neutral casks or neutral wood. And other botanicals beyond fruits can be used. But if you add, for instance, too much juniper eau de vie, then magically you've got a gin on your hands. So it's really hard to decide very clearly what eau de vie is because every, you know, Stephen said in Germany, it's this way. And in France, it's this way. And you, you know, you head a bit further south and it's uh, different traditions so it's kind of like shochu in that way, in that sense, I guess. Uh, there's a lot of variety, a lot of diversity, and a lot of interpretations. That may be why we settled on aromatic shochu essentially being eau de vie, because of that diversity and, and uh, the, the wide range of, of different expressions that can come from a single distilling tradition. Right. And in, in Europe, there's actually a tradition of home distilling. Uh, particularly in the agricultural regions of Western Europe, uh, there's a village in Alsace, France, and I'm, I cannot speak French, but I'm going to try, called Les Putois, uh, which had well over 100 home stills in operation as late as the mid-20th century. Jeez. And, and every family had a right to distill up to 10 liters of pure ethanol annually tax-free. And after that, they could make as much as they wanted, but they were taxed on it. Jeez. And anyone who started distilling after 1952 is taxed from the start, from the first drop. But it remains the heart of French eau de vie. That village still there, I believe there's something like 40 uh, stills still in operation in the region. And 
some of the most famous eau de vie in the world are made in these tiny family stills in the village of Les Poutois. Have you been to Alsace before? I have not. It's very high on my list of places I want to visit when I go back to Europe. I haven't been either. Yeah, that, that sounds like an amazing spot. I love the, I love how common distillation is. And I, I think it's silly that places like Japan are so buttoned up about it, but hey. Right. I mean, in America, home distilling is still illegal. So it's uh, really interesting. The Europeans have a, uh, such a different mindset and German schnapps are, are similar. My father's wife's uncle used to make cherry schnapps in the Black Forest until he retired. And it wasn't until he retired from making schnapps. It was when he retired from his career. He had a, he had a day job and he distilled for fun and he'd, he'd sell the bottles to his neighbors. He'd give it away to family members. And I had a bottle for years and it was a really beautiful, essentially cherry spirit. Uh, and I nurtured, nursed it really, really carefully in dribs and drabs until I finished the bottle. And then when I w went back to uh, ask, ask for more, he didn't have any more because he'd stopped making it. No, oh, that's a bummer. Yeah, that's a, that sounds like an amazing hobby. I mean, just like I started out home brewing at home it's, and, you know, some people make mead at home and got home winemakers and everything. Home distillation sounds like a ton of fun. And there are countertop stills that you can get now and there's intended for i think purifying water of course but <laughs> a lot of people are going to find other ways to to use them i'm tempted to get one i really am and i probably shouldn't say that on on a recorded <laughs> podcast but you know in japan i mean let's talk about japan in a little bit more there really aren't any of these home distilling or as you know home brewing traditions you know home brewing and home distilling has been illegal for 170 something years, I think, right? It's basically since the Meiji Restoration. And even today, homebrewers are supposed to go to a brewing cooperative with a beer brewing license in order to make beer for their own consumption at home. And some people don't do that. I, know, I mean, you can buy uh, beer brewing kits at, at uh, Tokyo Hands, for instance. I've seen them there personally with my own two eyes and they do sell the malt extract cans. I don't think it's illegal for the shops to sell those things, but if you actually make a beer over like 1% alcohol, you're technically breaking the law, I believe. <laughs> and so it's a, you know, unfortunately, this is not really a home thing. The only real homemade alcohol, beverage alcohol products that are common in Japan are macerations, actually. They are... right. It's soaking plums or, well, they're more similar to apricots, but whatever. They're often called plums in a neutral spirit and with a ton of sugar in it. And that becomes umeshu, right? Right. Yeah, it really is those home macerations. And, you know, you might use other fruits, you know, depending on what's in season or that sort of thing. But yeah, it really is just macerated. You're, you're not making alcohol. You're just making flavor. You're making a neutral spirit taste better. Yep. Uh, as we mentioned in the last episode, Nika, obviously famous for whiskey, was making apple brandy before they were making whiskey because they had tried to make apple juice. It wasn't selling. They ended up taking all that, fermenting it, distilling it. Mm -hmm. So their first alcoholic beverage was actually an apple brandy. Uh, so maybe they were one of the first Oda V makers in Japan. Not really their focus, but they apparently made some at one point. And they still make an apple brandy. I believe it's casked for, for far too long to be considered an eau de vie anymore. Mm. But that, that still is a tiny part of their business. And of course, there are many sake makers, I think, who have been making fruit liqueurs of various types for years. 
And that's usually though, where you've got a distillate and you've, you've added some fruit or fruit flavoring, fruit syrup after the distillation. So that's again, not really what we're talking about here. Yeah. That's not the same thing, is it? That's a, that's a shortcut. So, and of course, to keep talking about Japanese producers, if we focus on the shochu makers, and even in some cases, some of the makers down in Okinawa that are doing interesting things with awamori as a base, you could rightly describe some of those as O to, o to V. And they've been made for, for at least a couple of decades, I'd say. We've got green tea expressions, we've got shiso leaf expressions, and shiso is perilla or that green spade-shaped leaf that you often get with your sashimi. Mugwort, for instance, and a variety of other... I, one of my favorites, of course, is matatabi, which is silver vine, which is a cousin of, of catnip. And these things are highly aromatic. They don't add anything to the fermentation, but they are actually, they are added in the fermentation, almost like hops are added to the fermentation or bef- well, hops are added to also to the boil, but it's a more of an aromatic element that enhances the spirit. And it's certainly not added after distillation. And we do actually know of one kind of medium sized, probably on the on the lower side of medium sized maker, shochu maker in particular, who has decided to really put their back into O to V. And that's Satasoji in very far southern Kagoshima, down near Ibuski. Stephen, you and I have visited them and seen all their amazing imported stills and the the Akayane, the red roof part of their production facilities, because the shochu and these other spirits are produced in separate parts of the on separate parts of the property. But they make they make some crazy stuff. They make like they make this spice spirit. They make a whole damn, they make a whole damn spice rack of stuff. It's actually really, really exciting. They had like a, I think they had a cardamom eau de vie and they had what? They had, what were some of the other ones, man? Yeah. W- w- they've got the Sancho pepper. Oh yeah. They've got uh, black pepper, uh, cumin. I mean, just really, really wild spice expressions. Uh, and the way that they're doing it, it, again, it's not a fruit distillate. They're starting with a sweet potato shochu base, and then they're macerating aromatics in the distillate, and then redistilling to capture that essence, right? So the shancho pepper, the cumin, uh, black pepper, whatever. So really, really interesting spice-focused products for the most part. Yeah, I believe that they do have an ume, so they actually are using the plums, but as part of the fermentation and then distilling. Okay. Uh, so the Japanese, essentially, like you said, they're more like what apricots. So. But really, really interesting things from Akayane uh, down there in Kagoshima. Yeah, absolutely. Just delicious expressions that are, and and I, I we love the branding too. So we're very partial to these products, but they're they're hard to get a hold of, unfortunately. Well, it's uh, that's to be expected for really good things. But there there's and there's some other stuff going on here, right? There's some other makers. Well, yeah. If we can actually stick on Sato Soji for a moment. Okay. Yeah, so Sata Soji, with all of those great uh, spice-focused products and everything, is a really interesting producer. But they're not just taking their stainless steel pot stills for making shochu and then redistilling with the with the spices and everything. They're actually all in. They've imported 
vintage, basically vintage stills from Europe. They've got an alembic still. They've got just all these crazy still designs, and they're getting these incredible aromas because that's what these stills are essentially designed for, right? These are the stills that were created for eau de vie, for fruit distillates. And I remember we, when we went into their aging room, they they had some essentially calvados, right? They were making apple brandy. They were making all kinds of really, really interesting things. And I'm really curious what will be coming out of that distillery in the future beyond what they've already got in market. Yeah, they, they're very creative. So I expect them to continue to innovate a bunch of one-offs and find stuff that really resonates with people and then pursue those avenues. But yeah, it's a really, really remarkable operation that they have down there. Sure. Now, there are two dedicated O2V makers in Japan now that I think we should talk a little bit about. And these aren't shochu, whiskey, or sake makers who are making O2V on the side. These are two micro distilleries that are focused exclusively on O2V, or they might move into gin, absinthe, things like that. But basically, they're becoming experts in uh, creating these, these distillates that uh, have these aromatics that are really beautiful. And one is called Mitosaya Botanical Distillery in Chiba. And it's a fascinating story. Back in the 1980s, the Chiba Prefectural Government started the Chiba Prefectural Medicinal Herb Garden. Hmm. So there was a garden where you could go and you could see all of the plants where all of these traditional uh, Japanese medicinal herbs grew and see what they looked like and what they smelled like. And you could touch them and, you know. And then the bubble pops and the Chiba government loses tons of tax revenue and they can't really keep the upkeep of this garden. And so, of course, this is, this is such a classic Japanese sort of governmental sort of thing. The, the prefectural government's like, ah, oh, we can't afford this anymore. So we're going to give it to this little town. Otaki town gets handed the, the garden. And of course, they've got much less tax revenue than the prefectural government. Yeah. Um, and so they struggle along, you know, they try to do their, their duty to the community and keep, keep the garden open for a few more years. But then in 2015, they're like, all right, we just got to pull the plug. We can't afford this anymore. And it was kind of a beloved area, apparently, for the locals and a lot of the people who would come and visit Chiba from other parts of Japan. It's not that far from Tokyo. And so they started a crowdfunding campaign. And it was started by this uh, bookshop owner uh, named Hiroshi Eguchi. And they raised a ton of money and ended up building a micro distillery on the site in order to get prepared to start making alcohol. This, this, this bookshop owner, who used to be a salaryman, he goes to Germany and does an internship with Christoph Keller, who's one of the co-founders of the Monkey 47 Gin. Yeah. So he goes right to one of the best people in the world to learn how to make this stuff from. Uh, and he learns how to make brandy. And he comes back and he starts the Mitosaya Botanical Distillery in Chiba. So kind of crazy. Good name on that guy too, Christoph. <laughs> Anyways, if you visit the, the website for Mitosaya, you can see that they have a really, really interesting array of products. And it seems like all of them are an experiment of one form or another and they're all sold out too i'm gonna i'll, I'll open this up and read them a couple right now they've got number 66 is their juvenile calva which is made from various apple varietals sourced in tohoku up north in japan and it's a brandy that's oaked it's uh spends time in a in a barrel then there's number 65. I'm going down, so I guess I'm reading backwards in terms of, oh, no, they've got a 103 too. Number 65 is their Grappa Delaware. Number 103 is Jonathan Apple, which is made from juicy 
Kogyoku, apples from Saku, Saku Nagano. And a bunch of different apple ones. They've got number 101 is a white strawberry. <laughs> wow. That's got to be pricey. <laughs> and then number 100, number 100 is weed and seaweed, which is redistilled 19 herbaceous botanicals with Isumi ocean algae. So just wild. Just wow, you know? Yeah. Um, pretty cool sounding stuff. I w- would love to go visit these guys. Yeah, some fascinating things on that list. We should really try to uh, get that on our agenda sometime when I'm in the area. Yeah. Be a lot of fun to, to head out there, see the micro distillery and, and, and try some of these things. Yeah, I'm down. Yeah. Definitely down. You're driving. <laughs> Fair. I can do that. Um, so our last stop makes Mitosaya Botanical Distillery, this micro distillery, look big. <laughs> and that's Tatsumi. Tatsumi, yeah. Which is a one-man show up in the mountains of Gifu Prefecture. Shohei Tatsumi does it all on his own, every single step. And he's making it all in a very traditional wood still. He's actually got one of those really old style, like the kind of thing you'd expect to find in rural Mexico or whatever. Uh, And he's using the pure mountain spring water, seasonal botanicals from local farmers. Like he goes and he works with the farmers to grow things and then he he makes them and distills them. And he got his know-how from working in shochu distilleries. So he learned how to make shochu and then he started his own distillery and he's really gained a cult following uh, in Japan. But that's if you can find anything. Sure. Because every single release he does is between like 200 and 400, maybe 500 bottles. And then it's gone. Do you know what the retail on those generally is? I think, so he does everything in 500 ml. Yeah, they're kind of small bottles. They're little bottles. And I've seen them posted online for somewhere around 5,000 yen a bottle on Japanese retail websites, but they're never available. They're always sold out. Yeah, I just, I checked them on on the one of the auction sites and they tend to be available there for anywhere between seven and 12,000 yen. So they're going for a little bit of a, of a premium there. Okay. About 50 to hundred percent markup. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. I, I think I've tried a little bit of his stuff because they'll often have it at Sunkujira here in, Fu- here in Fukuoka, one of our favorite right. uh, shochu bars. Um, mm-hmm. So I know that I've had his products, but I, now I want to go back, you know, reading about him and everything he's doing. I want to go back and explore. And then of course, if there's ever a chance to get up into the mountains in Gifu, and have a visit. It seems like he's got a pretty cool little shop. Apparently, his little bar tasting area, he's got like 2,000 different alcohols. Jesus. It's just his private collection. And he's just like, oh, you want to try something? Sure. <laughs> here was my inspiration for this. And here's, you know, huh. I love this from from wherever. So, wow. Just sounds like a crazy little place. It's, an, it's like an only in Japan sort of experience, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it also brings back that idea of these these uh, these family stills, right? In, in Alsace where you've got this guy who just does it himself. He's got his little still and he, he just does what he does. So uh, it's a little, I guess, a little bit of France and Japan in a way, but w- with, a, with a really Japanese twist to it, right? Yeah. It's using the local botanicals. It's using the local uh, fruits and ingredients and things like that and just making their own expressions of Japanese eau de vie. You drinking anything? No. <laughs> <laughs> Are you? Yeah. I broke out the Mizu green tea. Ah, uh, damn it. I just had my jab today, so I'm, I'm alcohol-free. Sure, sure. Yeah. Thank you all very much for listening to another episode of Japan Distilled. 
If you've not already, then please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast wherever you happen to enjoy listening to it. It really helps others find the show. And please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram. You can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. How about you, Stephen? Yeah, you can reach out to me at Japan Distilled on Twitter or Instagram. We actually never mention it, but we do have a Facebook page. And uh, if you want to interact there, we can do that as well. Uh, we usually post the podcast episodes and any other interesting tidbits if you're more of a Facebook user. Uh, but we should give another shout out to Numunication.jp, uh, which does have information about all of these distilleries. Uh, great place for all things Japanese spirits in written form. Definitely. And also, please tune in to our Japan Distilled Show Tuesday every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern and 10 a.m. Wednesday here in Japan. So from both of us here in Japan to everyone out there all around the world, thank you for listening. And from both of us, a very hearty and heartfelt kanpai. Kanpai. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. Time's up.